Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome, everybody. Um, this is another episode of Amazon Legends where we have a true professional. And uh, we have Michael Andrek today. Michael is the head of e commerce channels at Ethos Preparedness. And he's been managing seller accounts for over a decade. There is not much that he has not seen. He's the, the, the go-to guy for anything that is to do with Amazon as far as individual moving parts and the big picture strategy. So uh, there's going to be a lot that we're going to be asking Michael, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot. So his company, Ethos Preparedness, actually started in 2013, and they specialize in all things related to organizational preparedness for organizations such as hospitals, schools, enterprise, shelters, and others. And also Ethos discovered that there is a market for consumers. So Redfora was founded on that principle to sell all things related to preparedness for consumers. And their main product, for example, is earthquake bag. And um, Ethos is based in California. So that's obviously something that's very much needed. And then also bags for hurricanes, wildfires, you name it. And their products make it easy enough to be prepared where you can grab and then run if there is such a situation. So, um, so usually sellers typically focus on driving sales, getting orders, and then move stuff as much as possible and as soon as possible but really, they don't put too much thought into managing large volumes of water. So if you're starting new, obviously, you want to get a lot of orders. But once you do, that becomes a challenge to juggle everything so that you've got continuity in sales. So um, Michael uh, does something that people don't think about when they start the business, and he does it really well. So. Uh, Michael, tell us about how you juggle when the operation grows and you manage to fulfill all the orders and, and you do that really well. So tell us how you do it and what's your secret and what would be the things that you would recommend for other people. So um, the earthquake bag is an interesting product because a lot of demand is generated whenever there's like an, like, like an earthquake, right? Um, your order volume can go through the roof like within 15 minutes. Uh, because of that, we always have to be prepared to be able to handle this initial, um, the initial order surge and be able to sustain that and get those orders out as, as quickly as possible for our customers. Because, you know, they're kind of worried. The biggest thing that we have to make sure we are ready to do is have a plan. Know how much of the, the parts that we have that we can assemble the bag know what we can get out the door into our fulfillment centers, what we can get out the door to our customers. 
unless you have a global understanding of what your production level looks like and what it is, you're going to fall flat. You're going to get thousands and thousands of orders and not be able to fulfill them. And it takes really good inventory planning to make sure that you can execute once you get those huge surges. So what I hear is something we've actually never covered before because you mentioned the word assembly. So this actually applies to anybody who wants to create bundles because you don't necessarily have that finished item in stock as inventory that you can track. You actually have the components and those components, you need to know what to put into making up that final item. So this makes the challenge a lot harder, right? So how do you, how do, how do, you do that? So we currently, it used to be a manual process, but we have a ERP now that can help us with our kit builds. So it, it looks at each of our individual SKUs and then it breaks it down into its component parts. And then we can run a report and we can only build as many of like the earthquake bag as the parts that we have underneath it. So making sure it's a sourcing thing too, because you have to make sure you have all of the little pieces that go inside it constantly, like either on its way or you have a healthy safety stock of it, just so you can push that parent product up and get it out. It's it's a lot of work, but uh, it, it's rewarding. Yeah. So as far as this, this guys applies to everybody. For example, if you created a, a, a value pack of like six of this and six of the other or three of this and three of the other and you've got different variations and then you make up a bundle you really don't have that bundle in stock at all times you have the individual components so so what michael is talking about is uh, is extremely important so you need to really have bottom line systems in place right you can't do this manually and then scale right so i've seen a lot of sellers in the past try to differentiate themselves, especially on list ASINs that are already out there by creating multi-packs for things. And that create that can create a huge headache, even if you have like a hundred of an item, say you get 75 orders for, for singles and then you get 50 orders for three packs. You still have to fulfill those orders one way or the other, unless you know or have a system in place to where you can deplete that stock of the multi-packs that is taking away from those singles, you're going to get stuck with open orders that you can't fulfill until you restock or yeah. source those things. Yeah, it just adds another dimension. Like I always advocate to my clients that, you know, create a parent and then create packs or bundles mm -hmm. under it. So that way you can drive your traffic to the parent, which saves you a lot of advertising dollars. <laughs> And, and then, you know, you, you have multiple options for the customer to buy. So you can increase your conversion or at least maximize your revenue. But that then starts, uh, you know, puts you on a whole different challenge, challenging path to be able to manage this. So you, you highlight that. Uh, I don't think many people think about it. Yeah. And the whole parent-child relationship with especially advertising on Amazon is, is a godsend, right? Because can you imagine having to run campaigns on like, uh, you have one item that's got so many different variations, but you have those all listed as an individual item. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't imagine how much that would I mean, that, that's, that's something that uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of sellers that are just starting out and, and they 
you know, they just click around, they open their seller account, and the next thing is they're listing their items. They don't think about these things. They don't, they don't even know unless they are selling products that, that needs that kind of capability where you have like different colors, different mm -hmm. sizes, like shoes and shirts, then they look for it. But ordinarily, they don't, they don't look for such things to create value packs and things like that. So very important. So that rolls into an inventory challenge. You mentioned ERP. So tell us what ERP is and which ERP system are you using? So ERP is an enterprise resource planning software, and it's basically what you run your entire business on. So it can be something as simple as, say, like QuickBooks, which I, I wouldn't classify as like a full-blown ERP, up into like you, you've got your Sages and you get your Dynamics or Microsoft Dynamics, NetSuite, things like that. Uh, but it basically combines like order management, warehouse management, production, everything all into one big bucket and lets you get a global view of what your business looks like from production to shipping to, to your, um, your sales to like personnel and operations, like all in one place. And uh, as a company scales, you want to make sure you keep all of these things in mind and have it visual or like right in front of you because um, it makes forecasting and planning a lot easier because you know what your labor force looks like. You know what your pipeline looks like, like when you're planning for like Q4, right? You have to, you know what you need to be, what you are capable of, as well as being able to track all that revenue and, and money going in, money going out. Just having one singular focus is incredibly important and ERP is uh, invaluable for that. And which one did you pick? Uh, we want the Sage Impact. Okay. So uh, what you put uh, there is, is, is extremely important. So what happens is, especially small businesses, when they first start, they've got QuickBooks for their accounting, they've got Shopify for their website, and then they have Excel typically for downloading, <laughs> looking at reports. And then suddenly, you know, they sign up for this SaaS program, sign up for that, that SaaS program. They have to get some kind of an order management system. They initially run off of Shopify, but it pretty quickly. I, I have a lot of experience. You have to get, especially with an ERP, you got to get in the middleware games. So you got like, yeah, program. yeah. So, so basically what happens is you start accumulating information that is key to your decision-making for managing your channels. And it becomes all over the place, scattered. So uh, from my standpoint, when I did this, I would be exhausted by the time I gathered all everything in one place and looked at the report, which by the way, would be outdated the moment that you <laughs> download it. Uh, so I, I would, but even then, uh, it, outdated or, or not, I just would be exhausted to look at it and really put intense brain work because all that legwork, gathering things. So you do that at the beginning. I mean, that's how you, you don't start with any RP. You, you had to do that. So you suffer through it. But in order to scale, there is no question that you'd have to go to any ERP because ERP will put everything under one roof and give you one overall view of what your operation is doing because you run the operation by those metrics and, mm -hmm. and the data that is reported. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, a lot of people don't appreciate it and then they just start to wing it.
And what happens is, by the way, I've also seen if you just wing it, because it's not cheap to go to ERP, right? Yeah. It, it takes time yeah, and a lot of money. Time and money. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and we're talking like six digits, mm -hmm. low six digits. So when you don't do that, and then you just keep winging it, keep winging it, ultimately everything comes crashing down because it's impossible. You won't see things. You will make wrong decisions. You'll buy too much inventory or too little inventory at best. And either way, it's not a good way. So for every decision maker, it's, there is a time they say, okay, we're moving to ERP. So I, I will say on that, like you said, we have the data, you have everything like that you get, you're doing it all manual. Uh, a lot of times uh, e-commerce sellers look at the value that they're getting in is the money coming in from their deposits, right? You're also getting incredibly valuable customer information. And being able to keep track of what products are popular, like just anything marketing, that data, that sales activity data is incredibly important because you don't want it to fall by the wayside. That's valuable market insight right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I find always as the first thing to look at and stay on top of for every settlement report is what is the once the, the dust settles, you post everything to where you're supposed to post, which most people don't in the first place. <laughs> They just book the net deposit as their revenue, which is the, the wrong way to do it. Uh, then your cost of goods sold, your gross margin, for you need to know at all times and real time for every dollar that you sell, how much of it is going to buying the merchandise because that's the top layer of, in your bucket. And the rest, you know, even if you save money, which you, you can't really save too much money in the other costs, it's uh, like Amazon commission is fixed. You can't change that. Your shipping charges, you can't really change that much. You can negotiate rates maybe. If, it's, if you're doing FBA, it's fixed anyway. Mm -hmm. So, but to not to know your, what your gross margin is, that's really deadly. It can actually take you down. And when you have a more advanced system, you can get into like average costing as well, right? So yeah, purchase yeah, pricing yeah. Is, is not uniform. You can roll it all together and yeah, they'll get a good overall perspective of what your margin is. Great. So, by the way, how do you manage the Amazon analytics, like to track your, because these are your own listings, conversion is key. And from what I know, at the time, everything is, you know, it's business reports, you have to download them, and then you have to look at it. So how do you manage that? And are you, you feel that you, you are able to effectively uh, use the Amazon analytics in general? So our marketing department handles a lot of the analytics side of the business, but basically, like you said, it's a lot of manually getting that stuff out there, but we do use a platform called Databox and we parse all the information and load it into there. And we also add all of our information from the Red Fora website, any of our referrals. So like any of the PPC stuff that we do or like anything that drives that funnel, we pipe into Databox. And have you ever heard of Databox? Yeah, I have not, no. It's like a, a data visualization platform. So you can slice and dice all the numbers together and have like one window, like a, a gauge cluster of a car. And it just spells out like exact, like market trends with plots and charts and 
it, it, it makes it incredibly visible. And you you plug the data into it manually? Uh, we have, so Databox does have import or like functionality that integrates within Shopify and some Amazon and then others, it's just a matter of a spreadsheet that we just add to Google yeah. Docs and it produces okay. it. Yeah, and, and of course that's key, right? Because that shows you what's going on with your listings. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's amazing for like just getting a visualization of what your sales look like. Yeah. And okay, so uh, so t- um, obviously you're shipping products that need assembling. So how do you deal with FBA FBM models? So what 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 works for you? And give us your thought on some best practices and recommendations on when to use and how best to use each model. So staying within your IPI, because Amazon's really pushing that right now, is incredibly important. Uh, One thing you have to take into consideration is, especially when you're designing a product or about to launch a product, is does this make sense to even have it in FBA? especially if uh, if it's like a larger product, like a lot of our bags are a little bit too big and bulky to fulfill on FBA. I'd love to be able to do that, but it just, it just doesn't make sense to do that to spay, um, spend all that storage stuff or the storage fees and all that jazz. So you have to have an understanding of what your customer's order behavior is going to look like, and then have an understanding of what you can produce and just have the stock either staged so it's it's like a three-stage process right you have your your inner components and then we have our like whatever the bag it's going to go into and then your finished good which is ready to ship on the shelf and being able to stage those and have a production in-house to be able to fulfill those each of those steps is important and then the other aspect is you need to have awareness of what my run rates look like on this SKU. So if I know this SKU sells X amount of units, I know it takes average X amount of days to get something checked into FBA or into a 3PL if you use it or what the workup is to get that put into finished goods so we can do FBM. You know that you never want to drop below that limit and you want to have something either on the way or in production like in between that and being able to establish what we are comfortable with having in stock at any location at any time it is paramount, right? Because we can get like a major surge of orders that come in and we're going to run right into that safety stock limit. And then you have to strategize with how are you going to treat these orders? Like, yes, I ran out of FBA. I'm going to have to swap to do an FBM on this. Do I have the inventory to do FBM? I have this in finished goods. And then it becomes like setting shipping, um, shipping lead times. You know what my production is going to look like. You need to have that visibility on what your warehouse or what your production can actually do before you can like 100% dedicate to like, uh, especially a high moving SKU. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a couple of follow-up questions. But sure. uh, first, what I'm hearing is, you know, usually when you have inventory, you have like a reorder point that mm-hmm. you set for each item. So you are saying really, you have another almost, like a reorder point based on the order flow where you start to prepare for a shipment because that's what's going to be needed. 
and your reorder point for inventory that comes next because those things will work together, right? So if you if you keep uh, preparing, so to speak, for I should say staging for shipping out because your order flow rate is going up or down, whatever. You are drawing from the existing inventory, which will then trigger your true production reorder point or purchasing reorder point. Right. So you have two different order points to really stay close to. That's what I hear. Yeah, you have to. It's easier and more efficient to have production at working at like a standard clip than all of a sudden having a huge surge of activity. Because then you can run into issues to where you have to hire like outside help or have everybody in the, in the building working yeah. to get these orders out. Yeah. So just establishing what that pipeline looks like is incredible. So important. what I wanted to ask, I mean, we, we this comes up quite a bit and a, a good practice is never to rely on FBA only also have FBM, but the, as far as the mechanics of it, how does it work? So you have one listing and you are the seller on it. How do you go from FBA to FBM? Do you create another listing or do you just uh, switch it from FBA to FBM SKU? So you can list, as long as it's not active, you can list on your same ASIN twice as long as the SKU is different. So the way I've done it is I've had, I have in, in our ERP, because we're, we're sending, we're tracking it as two different units, right? The final assembly is going to be FBA with the FBA label and everything on it. And then I have like what our standard listing is the exact same product packed exactly the same way. It just has a different inventory sticker on it. And as soon as that FBA will sell out, then I'll make active the, the standard ASIN that is self-fulfilled. That way I can take advantage of both. Like once FBA is gone, bam, this is listed with seller fulfilled prime. We're good to go. And we don't drop our prime badge. It's just making sure these things aren't both on at the same time. And both important. of them, both FBA and FBM listings will have the same UPC. Yes. Right? And, and but you're using the same ASIN. Yes, the same ASIN, different seller SKU. Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing that you mentioned is the, the, the cost, right? The, the cost of the, the shipping cost. Mm -hmm. So your pricing may in fact be different if you switch to FBM, right? So you should always, when you're running the e-commerce business, have an idea of the margin that you're comfortable with. And especially when it comes to, a lot of customers expect standard pricing and especially like in a hectic, like really popular situation, I think customers might get a little bit turned off to see that the, the item that they were about to order sold out, but now it's $10 more expensive or like X amount more expensive. So being able to have that uniform like price is important. You, like you said, you just got to be cognizant of what your fees are and if you're comfortable of holding that price constant at yeah. the same time. There is one more thing that's very important because this kind of can lead to major disasters or can keep you going without any problem. And that is what's called the fulfillment latency rate, right? So when you create a listing that you are fulfilling yourself there is a field that's called fulfillment latency and that basically says how many days before the item can be shipped so if you don't have that a lot of people want to show in stock mm -hmm. so they don't or they just don't pay attention to it and then the system will apply its default 
and that default value will show in stock. And the next thing is Amazon is tracking, okay, when you said you were going to ship, and if you were late, then immediately your late ship rate will go up, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, once your late ship rate goes up, your on-time delivery rate will go up. And then, so it just becomes, and then that leads to negative feedback, a return, refund, right? <laughs> so that one little number, if you're not paying attention, that can really burn you. Oh, yeah. the That's... You have to, especially like peak surges and like when you, I mean, Amazon's mysterious beast. You could have a product that you didn't expect to blow up to to blow up and be like the next greatest thing, and the that little field, like how many what your production days look like, can make or break you as a seller. You need to make sure you do that properly. So you need to have a game plan in place to make sure. Yes, I can meet that one business day like turnaround. Like that's what my my time is. But if you know you have, you're going to have delay in production or you're going to need to give your warehouse a little bit of time to kind of catch their breath and calm down and get ready. And uh, you can always update that field and add like one to, I can't remember what it is, but I will say I have been watching a lot of the emails that have been coming from Amazon, like from the Amazon seller support, and they've been harping on sellers that have those longer windows like like over three day windows so i have a sneaking suspicion this this is just me but I've, I've been dealing with amazon a lot when they do these kind of things it's a new policy change announcement but they've been really going like hey we see that uh you're actually meeting like your fulfillment costs way before then customers are more likely to order from you and that's kind of almost amazon's code word to be saying hey Pretty soon we're going to have a policy that says you have to be able to ship within one business day. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm being kind of a conspiracy freak, but uh, that I've seen it happen like that. No, before. no, you, you're right. I mean, about this particular one, I don't know. We'll see, I guess. But you are absolutely right. Amazon is the kind of company where you have to read between the lines. Mm -hmm. They don't tell you exactly. You have to. You have to see their uh, behavior, so to speak, when it comes to policy and procedure. And then immediate watch also what's going on in Amazon world in general, and then expect that this is coming. So uh, one of my most favorite experiences is I, I built a whole uh, repricing system and it was simply trying to keep me in the buy box. And but this is back in 2009. There were no repricers. So uh, I was doing it out first. That gave me a lot of volume. Uh, but what, what I discovered was Amazon was looking at the standard shipping. Because if you are fulfilling yourself, you have standard shipping, expedited and express shipping. So it was simply taking the item price and the shipping price from the merchant and then calculating what it takes to be in the buy box. Mm -hmm. so, so what I discovered was there was one particular seller so crafty, he discovered that if he didn't offer standard shipping, but only expedited shipping, <laughs> Amazon was completely ignoring the fact that the guy didn't even offer standard shipping, was taking the standard shipping, which is zero, doesn't exist, into account, and then counted. So I discovered this. I discovered this. Because I'm looking at the numbers also, I did everything at my end was automated. 
So I'm looking at it and my buyback rate is, is down and it's because of the seller. So uh, when I started digging, it was also hard to really discover this mm -hmm. in terms of what's going Because at the beginning, you don't know. You're looking at all kinds of things. So, uh, so, so I reported it to Amazon. And I said, look at this. This is wrong. You are, your, your system is ignoring. You know what their response to me was? There's nothing we can do about that. It's website behavior. <laughs> but you know what happened? I changed my end so that I could tell exactly. But uh, it was like six months or, or so. One day, bang, they changed the system. So clearly that got reported. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, and they made the change, but it took time. So of course, once they made that change, I was ready. All <laughs> the sellers, all the sellers that were playing the Vibarks game, they were out of it. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you really need to pay attention to what's going on and then, you know, read between the lines. They won't tell you until it's too late. And honestly, uh, I it's a blessing and the curse, but the Amazon seller forums is okay to take like a glimmer at or just like a quick look at. Don't really get in depth with it. But a lot of times, uh, because Amazon will do these program changes kind of in waves, so some sellers will get like a heads up before other sellers do. And so watching to see if like anybody's like, hey, I got this real email from Amazon saying XYZ policy is going to happen soon. You kind of get like a heads up that way as well. Yeah. Because yeah. I've seen like when the seller fulfilled prime changes were initially announced, they did it in like two different batches. And I actually saw somebody post it on the forum first. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> this is going to be bad. Yeah. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about what kind of an impact these peak seasons make and how do you get ready for it, like shopping season, the prime day, and, and, this, and also the post-pandemic world. So peak buying season begins before even peak buying season. You need to make sure that you have all of your purchasing ready to go. Like you need to either stuff needs to be on the way or about to land in your warehouse. So you have to get, you got to be ready. Uh, the good thing for us is because the products that we have are, are very spike based at times. We can rely on those regular shipments that we always have coming in. And it becomes just a matter of working up that stock to have it ready to go. And it's just like adjusting um, what, what you're what you're stocking in house and adjusting like how much you're sending to FBA or how much you're sending to a 3PL. Um, it's just beefing up those numbers. That's what I've been doing for a while. Mm -hmm. Is you need to make sure you have like stock in the pipeline before even before people even start talking about the holiday buying season or if you're a seasonal like if you're a seasonal seller or um, just things like that. Like I used to work in telecommunications and you, you were cognizant of the buying habits that like organizations use to, to, to refresh their, their equipment and what schools do and hospitals do. So you need to have like a global understanding of what customer buying habits are going to look like. And once you have that, you can work up and optimize what your production is going to look like and what your buying is going to look like. So you always have to keep that stuff into consideration. Now, the, the other thing that, that I focused when I was the, the seller 
was the metrics. For example, what I noticed was the first time I really started to pay attention to the numbers uh, rather than just the selling part was after the shopping season, especially around January, like beginning of January or throughout January, but it would kind of start after the 10th of January, negative feedback ratings went up because that's when people are looking at, they are back from the holidays, if they were traveling, they're back from their travels, and then they start to find out that the gift that they bought for so-and-so never made it, and they all made it, and they're not happy. So you start to get hit with this high return rate, refund rate, high negatives. And of course, while they are going up, your order volume is coming down. Mm -hmm. So your, your, you know, when you do the ratio, it really suddenly your negatives. And I'm not talking about the individual listing. I'm talking about your seller rating. Which most people don't pay attention to, they don't even know how to look at it. So, those are all valuable, <laughs> like the seller ratings are worth their weight. Yeah, over. I mean, if everybody's seeing the seller rating, they don't stay, they are on the product page, but when they're buying it, they're looking at the seller rating. So, uh, they would start to climb like 10%, 12%, 15%. So, what I did was uh, I would tell my team, guys, by the time November comes in, our negatives cannot be any more than two, three percent, mm-hmm. because you can bet that that's going to go over ten percent by the time January rolls around, and then you know it will be very hard to catch up. Yep. Uh, so uh, because that that also drops off once you move into like thirty days, sixty day, ninety days on. But nevertheless, everybody's looking at their immediate uh, experience. So. That's also something that would take, and also imagine if you are at 6%, 7% in July, uh, and you want to be down to 2 3% in November, okay, that's good. But if you realize, oh, in October, oh, we need to bring this down, you're not bringing that down. No, that, especially with the seller reviews and handling those kind of, like when, you, when your defect report's getting hit pretty hard and things like that is... You have the customers that, uh, how, how do I say this gently? That you'll get erroneous reviews that not necessarily apply to you as a company and those you can't control. Yeah. What you can't control is the customer experience and you got to make sure that you don't, the customer doesn't have an excuse to that is in your control to leave that negative review. Yeah. Um, well, that is actually a, a good trigger for me yeah, to ask you, tell us about some of the best practices of how to deal with these customers from Amazon policy standpoint. What to, what you can say, what you cannot say, what you can include in your emails and what you cannot. <laughs> um. I, <laughs> I hate to ask this. I know it's a, this is like a, a big, a controversial subject right so i think the biggest thing that red fora has going for us is we make our product as simple as possible for anybody to understand how to use it like we spell out 
like we include a guide with everything we have like video tutorials on how everything works and majority of the time that keeps like that uh um takes care of all of our customers but you do have the ones that sneak in um and and a lot of the the complaints that come in are legitimate complaints that could potentially affect like how something happened in production that we had to fix and then you have the other complaints that are things that I never would have taken into consideration, but I can see a problem. Like, I think one of them was like a, uh, a person ordered a bag, but it was too heavy for her. And then I'm like, this got us moving in the back. They were like, okay, maybe we can come up with a product that's smaller and still has enough stuff. So that is how we handle preventing those things. Um, and then you just got to be tactful with how you respond to customers. Like you, you, especially the ones where you as a seller could be in the right, the customer can be in the wrong, but Amazon assumes that all of the sellers are wrong and all the customers are right. And, and navigating that with tact is incredibly important because, you know, you kind of feel slighted when you get those types of emails and those types of metric hits. Um, you just got to be able to take it on the chin and just treat the customer well, because of course, Amazon's going to know how you're interacting with that customer and a customer can do a lot more damage to your account instead of just leaving a negative review, right? If, if they wanted to get incredibly spiteful, they can get you shut down. Yeah. So I'm not one to fight a customer if they think they had a bad customer experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what you just said is true. If they think they had a bad customer experience, not necessarily they may have had a bad customer experience, but if they think that that's good enough for Amazon to say, no, this is not good. And uh, the other thing is you can't do things like, oh, if you do this, I'm going to do this for you, like in a good way. If you mm-hmm. you, know, if you take uh, remove your negative, your feedback, your negative feedback, I'm going to give you this. Or gift card for five star review. I I I've like sat down like I before the pandemic started. I was redoing my home office and I was buying a lot of cable organizing and just stuff to make things like look nice. And probably out of the ten packages that I ordered, five came with a card promising me a ten dollar gift card to Amazon for a five star review. And well, I'm looking at this and I'm that, like, that does happen. And as long as it's a package insert, it is to see the word, the verbiage is, is key. You, how do you, uh, I, this violated the policy because I reported it. In the shut oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I expect a clean um, platform. I, I do things by the book. I, I expect every other seller to do the same thing. And you can't put your email address in, in these messages. No, or, no yeah. email address. Like you, it has to go through buyer seller messaging. Yeah. Okay. No, cool. No use trying to get around that. So, uh, so talk about the team. Obviously, you run the the channels, but tell us about what it takes to be successful on Amazon as a team, and uh, describe the roles. For because they have different things. Obviously, you are laser focused on inventory, but there are so many aspects that I mean, we just covered. You obviously know everything, but you can't do everything. Right. So, what are the roles, and and what is a good idea to outsource, and what is a good idea to keep it in house, and uh, what are the things that that you really don't want to let anybody else touch, but you do yourself. So, give us so- that. 
where because the comp- because red four is a brand operated under uh i'm going to say a larger company but like a company that deals more business to business versus business to consumer we can kind of take advantage of that because we have like an accounts payable person we have like a, a finance officer we have a ceo we have a marketing department and we have operations so we have um can i use names or sure sure so we have josh he he he's head of operations and warehouse right so he he's in charge of staffing back there and um getting products ready to go out the door and um, and then we have Megan, she's part of our customer service, but she does a lot of things for Red Fora as a brand. And um, she is fantastic dealing with customers. She can talk anybody off a ledge <laughs> and uh, get that good review. Even if, you know, they return the product, they still left us five stars. It's awesome. And um, Steve, he's in finance. He's basically the one I have to keep happy <laughs> with the sales and everything. And uh, Derek, he's our marketing manager. He does, he works with Alina um, and both of them get me all the copy that I need for, for my Amazon listings and all the images, all the PDP, everything that I need. Um, and then Charles, he's the CEO. He is amazing. And he's got really good um, forward facing ideas. And, and, and that's fantastic. And then I slot in with the, uh, my breadth of experience on selling not just on Amazon, but other shopping platforms and um, my expertise on like understanding customer behavior and ordering and the logistics behind getting stuff to Amazon or getting things from us into the customer's hand. Um, a lot of that is stuff that I, that I touch, but the cool thing about it is, is we like to cross train essential duties onto other employees like I said, we're very, we can be spike based at times with our sales and that you're, you're going to see a thousand fold increase in what your order velocity is. And with those inbound orders are going to be customer questions. So everybody needs to know how to be able to handle customer inquiries and handle things like that. And us being a small team and knowing each other really well um, makes that process so much easier. Like we- oh. So, I mean, but this is ultimately your show. You are in charge of it. You are the one who answers the tough questions about performance in general, whatever the, the case may be, right? That's that's basically you. Yes, because <laughs> the, the personal division, um, the e-commerce performance rests on my shoulders, basically. Yeah. So, so what I've heard is this. Somebody has to take ownership of the channel. Mm-hmm. That person has to be aware of everything, every single moving part and the performance of it, good or bad. Mm-hmm. And then you have to have somebody in operations, operations being primarily fulfillment of it. Fulfillment and production. And- fulfillment and production. Yep. One person in charge of customer experience, we call it CX, yeah. customer experience person. And that person is responsible for all those uh, performance metrics that Amazon tracks. Mm-hmm customer communications, or obviously you need to be intimately familiar with Amazon policies. Like if you send one message back and then you put your email address, that's not good. It's it all asterisk. Yeah, it may be well <laughs> intention. You know, it may say, oh, you know, we, we, we value uh, customer service. Therefore, if there is anything at all, email us or listen, that's it, you're done. So, mm-hmm. so uh, what person customer service? 
And uh, another one is in finance. So making sense of that, that incredible uh, maze of settlement report transactions so that you can see real numbers. And, um, and, and another person or another role is content, which is key to driving business, right? So, so right there, there's several roles and uh, for anybody who is thinking, oh, I, I just want to sign up for an account, and this is not really working. I, you know, I do this, the wife does that, and the kids do that. It, it's, you know, it can get you a few orders, but it's not a serious business if you want to grow it, right? Yeah, the growth is the key. You can do it yourself, but don't expect like exponential growth. And yeah. a lot of new sellers kind of fall into that trap. Yeah. And if, by the way, what I say is you can absolutely grow working that way, mm-hmm. but you're going to jeopardize your whole Amazon account because they'll shut you down when things will go wrong, when you are really not doing it as to the standards that Amazon expects, they'll shut you down. They don't really care. Yeah. And and I would also say like, if you're doing everything yourself, you run the risk of missing other opportunities on Amazon. Exactly. You're so in the weeds handling like every single little thing that you can kind of put blinders on and not see how Amazon as a platform is changing. So, um, so if you could wish one thing for Amazon to change in their policies, uh, what do you think that would be? I wouldn't necessarily say it's a policy change. I would say it is a, I wish Amazon had better customer support for our seller support. Sorry. Um, and we had uh, an Am- we were working directly with an Amazon account manager previously. Like they had this service, and you pay, and you'd have somebody that you can talk to on a regular basis for support. And even she said that Amazon support is so siloed, and Amazon like account health is so siloed. There's not much anybody can do for anybody over there. I think if they really wanted to take care of their their sellers on Amazon, they need to beef that game up there needs to be like a faster turnaround. If like they, something happened to your account, like a, like the Amazon bot misclassified you and you're fighting the the catalog team to try to get you moved back to where you are and where you have to go through escalations. It's kind of like shouting into a black box. So if they could really increase the the quality and turnaround of the communication they give to sellers, that would be fantastic. Great. Great. So uh, Michael, this is, pretty much all I wanted to cover on the Amazon subject. So as far as Michael uh, Andrake, who is Michael Andrake? What do you do? How do you decompress once you take some time away from all the work or you go home in the end? Where where do you live and what are the things that you do uh, in your free time? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I I live in St. Louis, Missouri. And... Basically, for fun, I like to do improv comedy. So, like, I'll uh, perform on stage. I don't know if you've ever seen like this show, Whose Lines Is Anyway? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I'm a graduate of the improv shop um, program here in St. Louis, and I've performed on stage there many a time. Um, I also do photography for the Compass Improv. Uh, whenever they do the Compass Improv Festival, I'll do photography. Photography is one of my bigger my bigger hobbies so they'll catch me out taking photos or with my dog so still it's not video right right uh, i'm trying to get into video it's the equipment investment for it is yes. this much versus still photography yeah. so 
it, it it's one of those things i i have the pieces to put a video rig together and just need to sit down and do it and figure out what do i actually want to record so so i also understand you're a dog person yes she's in what? the other room being quiet <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a dog she imagine a mix of like a um a jack russell and like three different other types of dogs in a 70 pound pack or in a 30 pound package okay that's what she is she she's interesting her name's good so um so tell us about where people can find out more and how people can find you personally and company and give us some of the essential contact info so you can find our products on redfora.com, R-E-D-F-O-R-A.com. We also sell on Amazon. Um, if you need to get in contact with us, uh, contact at redfora.com is, is an excellent way to, to get to us. It goes to everybody in the building. Um, also, I'm personally, I'm on LinkedIn. So if you, you want to connect, you could definitely uh, catch me there. Great, great. So uh, we'll post all your contact information on our website uh, under the episode. So uh, if anybody wants to reach out, they'll be able to get there. So um, if they do, obviously, I'm sure uh, being the experienced person, you'll be able to help uh, anybody out. So um, another episode comes to an end. And thank you, Michael, for your valuable information and the, uh, the experience here that you had with us. And um, that's it, everyone. See you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.